If you have not already done so, please turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 21. We're going to pick up in Exodus 21, beginning in verse 33, when we read God's word a few moments from now. We have a common saying in our culture as Christians, and that is just three simple words, God is good. When we say God is good a lot, we mean to say a lot. We're declaring the goodness of God with one little three-word phrase, God is good. Sometimes there's a little saying where people say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. However you think of it, whatever comes to mind when you talk about the goodness of God, that's operative for our text and our thoughts this morning. The Bible says that all things work together for the good of those who trust in the Lord, even though not all things are themselves good. We know that, right? When sinful men mean for bad, Joseph says at the end of Exodus, it's recorded that God used it for good. So while we are surrounded by bad, by things that are not good in this world, in our lives, as believers we have a promise that God works all things for good in his final and ultimate justice. But closer to right now, where you sit, where you live, your lives, what does it mean to say that God is good? Differently, how is God good to us? That's the question we want to engage in today. And we need to clear the naval deck a little bit right from the start by answering the question, are we good? Should we consider ourselves good? Well, to get at God's goodness, we tend to lead with God's likeness toward us or our likeness toward Him. But while we are created in His image and we are like Him in that way, our image of Godness is marred by sin terribly. Now we are marked by sin, described with sin, unlike God who doesn't sin and who is holy. Adam broke covenant with God in the garden, and we've been breaking covenant ever since. We are rightly defined as sinners, and that's no small thing. We aren't like God morally. In fact, though we think of ourselves like God and desire and think that we like and desire what God desires and likes, even our perception about what we desire and like can be marred by sin. Even our attempts like righteousness, the prophet Isaiah describes them as filthy medical rags filled with germs and disease in God's sight. Our wills are trapped in sin, and we do just what we want to do when we go on sinning and sinning more. Even when we do good things, we cannot be described as doing them for good reasons or as being good. For again, we are sinners, and that is exactly what nailed Jesus to the cross, was our sin. To get that in there early and often is part of what clears the navel deck that we might be able to understand how God is good toward us. Outside of Christ, no one is good. The Bible says, no, not one. So we aren't good like God, and God is good. So how is God getting His goodness toward us? My goodness, I think we might need some help. <laughs> so Let's look at the text today and try to understand it together. This is a the reason for reason in the Bible. It's why we need God to minister to us through His Word so much. We have in Exodus 21 and 22 these moral laws and some case law-specific law toward Israel given by God to His people to impress upon them how God's goodness is to get into 
his people and how God's goodness would get into the community and how God's goodness would get into any person. In this book, Exodus, we've been studying as a congregation so far, we've seen Moses writing about God's goodness in delivering his people from Egyptian slavery. They were the poor, the enslaved, the sojourners. That was them. And this book talks about how Moses is a great emancipator of God's people, leading them to freedom. But now it talks about how Moses is a great lawgiver to God's people, about how he helps them to see what life's supposed to be like as a free people. And it's not always as neat and tidy and clean as we might like to think of it. For we're still sinners, even if we're delivered from those that oppress us for a time. So we get a taste here of how God's people are to be different than the people of the world. That's what Exodus 21 to 23 does. Now, they didn't live up to those aspirations, but we get a picture of how they were supposed to have lived up to it. And what that means for all of us, we shall see in the end today. We want to answer questions around God's goodness meted out to us. And what we're going to see as we read this text is that God leads us through his good law to three things, responsibility, restraint, and respect. We'll see this in our reading today, responsibility, restraint, and respect. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 21 through the end of 22. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best, the best of in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing, and an oath by the Lord shall be 
between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. I should have said, he shall not make restitution. But verse 12, if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. Verse 13, if it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If he was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For, he is, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen, with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This is the word of the Lord. May it bless all who hears. Now what do we do with this word? How do we think about this setting 3,500 years ago in the 15th century B.C.? Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, granting us here within the broader book of Exodus what's called the book of the covenant, the book of the Mosaic Covenant, being conveyed to those people now constituted at the foot of Mount Sinai through God's words mediated through Moses to the people. What are we to make with this Jewish civil law and scripture? Well, as I've already said, God leads us through his good law to responsibility, to restraint, and to respect. Now let's consider the end of chapter 21 and the first 15 verses of 22 with regard to that first heading. God's goodness leads us to responsibility. And we see responsibility here for negligence in personal property and for theft of personal property. So there's an emphasis on the value of personal property in principle. Just consider the end of chapter 21. Responsibility for negligence of personal property. So then and there, they dug, a man dug a pit to trap an animal. It modernly would be similar to like digging a cistern and then leaving it uncovered. And negligence there could lead to someone or something falling in the uncovered hole in the ground. I grew up in southeast Missouri on 30 acres of property. We had animals. I'm not, it doesn't sound strange to me to have 
animals like they talk about here because I grew up around them. We bordered Mark Twain National Forest, and on the back side of that, when we would go back there to hunt or to play or to, to roam between there and the highway that ran up behind that, um, Dad would always say, watch out for open cisterns. Watch out for cisterns. A cistern would be a hole that was dug, and if that hole was not covered properly, you could fall into it. It could result in injury or death. Similarly, in the ancient world, pits were dug to trap dangerous animals and to make sure that they weren't causing uh, death or harm to loved ones or to beasts of burden or to other animals that a family had. And so this would have been gross negligence to not cover that hole, to not finish the job. Part of finishing the job would be the safety of the next person. It would be part of love of neighbor, be part of fulfilling the, the moral law of the Ten Commandments. And so if a beast of burden was lost, the pit digger would have to make restitution. That's the purpose of what's being said here. These types of things will happen. When they do happen, say, for example, another example given here, an ox kills another ox, then the owner split the losses. But if the owner of the goring ox, the asserting ox, knew that that ox had a, had a history, was accustomed to such behavior, and that can be established, there's, there's judiciary ideals here, in the book of the covenant that can be established, then therefore the owner of the goring ox would have to make restitution to the owner of the other ox and he would have to incur the loss. So there's responsibility for not doing what they should do, omitting the action. Also in our text, a little further down, if an owner allows his beast to graze in another's field or vineyard, even if it's unintentional, he makes restitution. If an owner causes a fire to break out through his actions, the fire starter makes full restitution. What was being taught here? Well, individual responsibility. God's goodness through the giving of his law led people toward individual responsibility. And in, with individual responsibility, you learned that principle through the high cost associated with gross negligence, with neglect. He was to give the best of his own in return, not the worst, not the leftovers. It's quite a lesson learned. We also see under this idea of responsibility, not only negligence, but also responsibility for theft of personal property. Now, if the former could be called a sin of omission, I didn't do what I was supposed to do, then the latter can be called a sin of commission. I committed this sin. I did what I shouldn't have done. And this is an overt breaking of the Ten Commandments. And what happens here is theft or stealing, thou shalt not steal, instead thou does steal. And when a man steals an animal, he is not just to repay that animal one for one, but it says he's to repay four to five times what is stolen. If you look down at chapter 22, verse 1, you begin to get an idea of that information afresh. A thief's intentions cannot be known in the dark, so the property owner is well within his rights and maybe even his responsibility and protection for his family to kill the thief that is breaking and entering. However, if it's daylight and it's petty theft, killing is not the answer. The owner's not just to kill that person just because they are angry or because they're escalating revenge. That would fall underneath not escalating revenge, which is the meaning of chapter in chapter 21 when you find an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The whole point is you can't take more than the eye. You can't take more than the tooth. You don't escalate revenge. For God is merciful. Even if an animal was recovered, the thief was to be indentured for six years if he couldn't pay, or he was to pay double if he could, for thou shalt not steal. And to say this is it, it's kind of a funny saying there, I think, in the text, but it, uh, it's, as one 
author said, it's the opposite of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. This is it, was to say I've identified the thing which I've either lost or has been taken from me and I want it back. And if that could be substantiated, then that was to go back to the original owner. The culture was not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But rather, it was a culture of identifying and placing responsibility on individuals and value on personal property. Paying double would be a deterrent to future would-be thieves. If the punishment for the crime was only replacement or less, the criminal might be tempted to continue with thievery in his activity. So conduct permitted would be conduct taught. There's also trauma associated with these altercations, right? Someone breaks into your home or tries to take something that's yours, there's an altercation there. Harm is associated with the loss. These breaches of trust, as chapter 22, verse 9 calls them, are just that. They are breaches of trust. There's a trust civilly between people, and when those breaches are broken, it's a serious matter. It's also a serious matter not to punish such breaches. When breaches of trust are done, and they're not punished equitably with equal weights and measures, that leads to the decline of a community. It causes for failure in a society. So God's model society, God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai, these slaves that just got freed that had to get the Amalekites off their backs as they're trucking along in the desert, they're supposed to be constituted in this way. And while they do have certain ways and means because of the society they lived in, they also are to be very distinct but, and not to take on the form of those societies around them. And breaching trust was one way that they were not to be because keeping trust was to mark these people. You know, also, in the the strength of community and individual responsibility, there's even wisdom here in principle for borrowing and returning things in a timely manner. How many of us have ever gotten sideways in a relationship because of inefficient or unwise borrowing or lending? I think we've all done that, you know? I mean, whether it's a shirt or... It's a car or it's a house or it's a whatever it is, you know, a tool. I mean, this is easy to have happen. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. And so we need God's goodness to help us along in understanding even how we relate in matters of wisdom. He helps us. There are principles here for harm that is incurred during borrowing that is accidental versus what is negligent. You can look at that on your own if you'd like. If negligent, full restitution must be paid. If it's determined accidental, no restitution is paid. It came as his hiring fee to do a job. So in this first aspect, in this text, what we see is that God is good to us through his law and that it leads people toward responsibility, taking responsibility. And negligence falls under sins of omission. Theft falls under sins of commission. I did what I shouldn't have done. Thankfully, the law serves us in understanding God's way rather than man's way, and in promoting individual responsibility within the community. Good law makes a community better. The law, as it's been said, functions as a teacher for what is right and what is wrong. So I wonder, just by way of thinking applicationally, are you a person who goes about life haphazardly? Would would you be rightly described as a person who is neglectful or even negligent? to the responsibilities in your life? Is that a pattern in your life? Would you allow God's principle here to shape your thinking? Nothing is outside the domain or the side of Almighty God. And He is good to you in disciplining you believers as His children. Hebrews 12 tells us that. 
So there are worse things than hurt feelings. And we're even going to see in our next point, there's even worse things than death. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a human being. The second death is the worst thing that can happen to a human being. And God is fashioning his children for eternal life and for the goodness of and in eternal life. So feel the freedom to repent of irresponsible actions and to pursue consecration in the Lord because of verses like this. Show responsibility in how you go about your dealings and, and live in such a manner that would promote the goodness of God because of his goodness to you. Secondly, God's goodness leads us to restraint. Here we take a closer look at verses 16 through 27. Verses 16 through 27. Pastor Jim Hamilton explained an important principle in this text when he said the following sentence. I shared it last week, and I might, I'm going to share it again, but I want to remind you of last week's sermon because I laid out a whole lot of principles for reading the Book of the Covenant that I'm not getting into today in terms of what was going on at the foot of Mount Sinai and, and issues of, of controversy and discussion. I tried to lay out some of those things last week, so I hope that you'll go back and, and listen to that if it would be profitable to you. But just simply to say, I said this particular sentence last week. He said, a community is defined by what they refuse to tolerate. A community is defined by what they refuse to tolerate. Differently, how far is too far? Like, what's going too far? What is it that we just won't tolerate as a community? You can probably think of a few things that just absolutely are completely unacceptable. They're socially unacceptable. You absolutely would not tolerate it. It's beyond credulity. You wouldn't take it. We've already seen the law of limiting revenge, the so-called eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This meant that there would be equal weights and measures in justice, as well as the punishment could not escalate or exceed beyond the crime. It was to be equal. It was to be valid. It was to be, there was to be consistent weights and measures. We see too, too much too often things that should be intolerable, tolerated in community. I think of... Jezebel in Revelation, and how the church is chastised for tolerating wicked Jezebel in their midst. Now, it's beyond the scope of this sermon to track down exactly what that meant, but it meant something to that church. It means something to this church. So what is intolerable to a community? What's intolerable to the church community? So I'm going to try to explain the text as it is and then offer a brief New Covenant application underneath this second heading of God's goodness leads us to restraint. So what's intolerable to this community, or at least it should be, in terms of how God lays it out in the book of the Mosaic Covenant? Sexual immorality, pagan sacrifice or sorcery, often also associated with immorality, and the oppression of the most vulnerable. These are the things that are supposed to be intolerable to this budding community. So let's take it in reverse. The most vulnerable would be mistreating the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. We see this in verses 21 to 27 of chapter 22. God uses human language to help us use our five senses to understand just how serious justice is for the most vulnerable in this community. He hears their cry, it says, when he cries out to them because of oppression by none other than these people that were recently released from oppression. Prayers would reach God if people were oppressed underneath this leadership and in this community. If you mistreat these vulnerable people, I'm going to make sure it comes back to you, God said. And we see that in the exile. We see verbs about it in Jeremiah and Lamentations. Sadly, tragically, 
but equal weights and measures are used and they are punished as they are exiled. What's some of the principles within here that we see? We see don't money lend in a payday loan sense toward the poor. Though the economy was different, you should never loan in such a manner as to prey upon the most vulnerable. That's a clear principle here. It's fine today if you're loaning money that's actually helping a, an upstart business or a person of lower socioeconomic status gain. That's fine. A win-win is fine, but that's not what's in view here. What's, being in view, what's in view here is there's, there, there's no realistic way in which this poor person is going to be able to pay back what's being loaned with exorbitant interest in pagan societies there. It was designed to make the poor poorer and the rich richer. And so God says you're not supposed to be lending like that. That's not to define your community. It would be impulsive or maybe based on real hunger need for a poor person to borrow like this. But they might be doing it out of desperation. And if the lender gouges, then he's not only not taking responsibility for his fellow man, but he's not exercising restraint any more than the person that's desperate because he's preying upon that person impulsively to try to better his own pocket. This type of greed is one of the worst kinds. Do not neglect or mistreat or oppress the one whose father has died, this text also says. So it moves not only through money lending, but also through how you care for those that have lost a loved one, especially a protector and a provider like a father. In that culture, it would have been the same for a widow. There's no mandatory, all-encompassing welfare system. They were to see and do right things based on God's law. Gleanings were allowed, if you think of Ruth the Moabite. The sojourner was to treat, be treated the way the Israelites would have wanted been treated when they were sojourning in Egypt if they had been treated rightly, like the golden rule. Right down to the littlest ones, the fatherless, the widow, by extension, the orphan. Remember how Egypt was murderous toward the Israelites. God wouldn't stand for this kind of action in reverse. His people aren't supposed to be like this. It's not tit for tat. It's not vigilante. It's not returning evil for evil. Unrestrained violations of the Mosaic Code, as I've said, is what led the people to wind up being exiled. It's what led to the breaking up of the kingship in the northern and southern kingdom. It's what led to, to the problems in the people and led them to see their need for the promised Savior. God takes a very long view with the people, takes a long view with us. He looks at the long term. He doesn't just look at the very, very short term. He talks about things that will be talked about and acted and talked about and shaped. And, and God's story, the Bible is just amazing that way. But it's also very specific in how His goodness is meted out in these very axioms in these verses. Like, take care in your earnings and dealings with the vulnerable, that you're pursuing justice and not just unrestrained self-improvement. That's a principle there. talks about sorcery, too. Sorcery was wrong when King Saul pursued it, a violation punishable by death, according to Exodus 22. The community was not to tolerate sorcerers or pagan sacrifice, a clear violation of the first table of the law. This was to be a community that was governed by God, and a community that understood God's laws. As I've said, there's worse things than death. Think about, in a New Testament corollary, consider the death of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He faced capital punishment for his thievery, but yet found escape from the second death. Then you might say, well, how do you know he found escape from the second death? Well, because Jesus is a promise keeper, and he promised that today... That thief, 
who was being punished on a cross, killed torturously for his crime, would be with him in the paradise of God in heaven. I wonder if disdain for capital punishment is a loss of belief in the fact that community matters and the precept that there is something worse than death. One theologian wrote of the death of death and the death of Christ. It's a way of saying that death has lost its sting, like the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. We need such an awakening to spiritual things now, don't we? In our day, that there are worse things than death, that the community is to have standards, that equal weights and measures matter, that the law is teaching something. In this text here, in teaching restraint to God's people, which is a good thing, we find that often pagan worship was associated with immorality, and these things are talked about also here in terms of bestiality, which was not at all to be tolerated amongst the people in the Mosaic community. They should not practice sexual expression wickedly. It was to be confined to covenant marriage in a one-flesh union, and God's goodness would lead them to restraint. And when people have unrestrained passions in this way, it leads to excess, and immorality with animals is not unheard of in our time. It is sadly a practice. Not so among you, not so among God's people, they said. And by extension of the Ten Commandments, I think it's easy enough for us to say that adultery and not committing adultery would include not committing bestiality. Seduction is a cruel tax on the community. It's a wrong. Men here are held responsible for the seduction described in verses 16 and 17. It'd probably be helpful if we just read them again because some of the language, though the principle is easy enough to catch, some of the language in laws about social justice here is going to be a little more difficult to understand, but understanding is important to application. So just listen to verses 16 and 17 afresh. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, and the word virgin is implied, not explicit in the text, but if a man seduces a woman like this, a woman of age, most think, who is not betrothed and lies with her, so she's not engaged in betrothal men, if you think Joseph and Mary would have been par for the course toward marriage. He lies with her. He shall then give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Verse 17, the father won't let it happen. If he refuses to do so, won't give her away, then he shall pay money equal to the bride price anyway bride price for virgins. And so, as I've said, seduction is a cruel tax on this community. A man should is held, held accountable because he's to practice restraint and labor to make her his lawfully wedded wife if he wants the fruit of the womb. This is godly. Listen to what a few commentators say about this. The ESV study Bible is helpful. It says, this rule relates to the practice of a man paying a bride price to his future father-in-law in order to marry his virgin daughter. Although the expression referring to the one who seduces the daughter most likely implies some mutual consent, the consequence focus on the responsibility of the man to provide, both through marrying the woman, unless the father utterly refuses, and by paying her father. Since the bride price was equivalent to several years' wages, okay, so just take what you make in a year and multiply it by three, and you're getting more at it. Several years' wages, that would serve a little bit of a deterrent, wouldn't it? This amounts to a threat of huge damages in the case of premarital intercourse. In the Tyndale commentary, Alan Cole says it like this, if a man seduces a young lady like this, this comes under the general heading of robbery. 
of robbery. An unmarried girl was, in a sense, her father's to give away, and he would, do, in due course, receive a marriage present or a bride price for her. The handling, handing over of such gifts marks the official engagement to this day in many parts of our world. Naturally, such engagement is almost as binding as marriage, being a financial arrangement, and seduction of an engaged girl by another man is treated as adultery and so punished, Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. So these, this accounts for Joseph's quandary in Matthew 118, or 119, but in, the, in this instance, since a man has taken a girl without paying the bride price, the bride price must be paid, or who else will pay it now? Also, he must acknowledge her as his wife unless her father refuses, and even if he does, the price must still be paid. This both recompenses the father, punishes the man, and provides for the young woman's future, which would have been now in jeopardy in this culture. There's a new covenant example of this that is affecting the community at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. A man has his father's wife, and the church community is instructed by the Apostle Paul to discipline this member. Why? Because it's intolerable. It's intolerable. They're not supposed to tolerate it. The man is in open rebellion, characteristically, unrepentantly at the time, and in a known manner by the saints, and so he just doesn't care. But God does, and God is good, and God's people do good when they care in community about what is the edges of tolerability. The church put the man out from the Lord's table, and it seems in 2 Corinthians that the man, having sincerely repented, came back into the official membership of the church with joy, and they had love renewed for one another because they were faithful to discipline, and the Lord used that to help a man move from open rebellion back into full function in the community. We have a church covenant here. We are God's means for expositing what is tolerable to the church community and thus what is intolerable. We don't do punishments with weaponry. We don't kill. We don't exact monetary retribution. But we do have the responsibility here to discipline that the rebellious might be won over again, that they might persevere to the end, for God disciplines those that He loves, Hebrews 12 says. That this manner of action might not spread in the community as if it's okay. We don't want the, that to be the functional law and to teach our children that that's a good way. It's, God says it's not a good way to live adulterously. And we want also to rightly represent our Lord to the world that is watching and they're watching us. They really are. That's called a witness, and we have one, whether you recognize it or not. So our failure to define what is tolerable is not neutral ground. A community is defined by what they refuse to tolerate. And a culture is defined by what they refuse to refuse to tolerate. We should think about that. Because as a community, God leads people in that community and the community as a whole to see goodness from God in where the edges of acceptability are to be drawn. And that should not be drawn too tightly, but it cannot not be drawn at all. God's word is such a good and present guide for us in this, isn't it? We should look to him for all wisdom. And more individually speaking, as far as God's goodness, let's consider it this way. God's goodness leads you to Restraint. Restraint. People, don't act on your impulses. 
And when you do, pay the price and repent. Who among us has not sinned? We've all sinned. But that doesn't mean that we sin more, that grace may abound more by no means. It means that we don't understand the sinfulness of sin when we do that. We need Christ. And in Christ, we have true guilt for our sin. And we are led to pursue a kind of restraint, not a wanton impulsiveness. And so we've seen so far that God's goodness through the giving of His law leads a people to individual responsibility as well as restraint. Thirdly, we see that it leads to respect. Respect. And we see this in just the last four verses of our text. It should be easy enough to reread. That is Exodus 22, 28 through 31. So let's reorient by rereading. It says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Oh, I think we see here... Uh, not every single gap filled in. You have to think back to earlier passages in Exodus. Is also read forward to consider what it means to see the firstborn son consecrated, what the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law, what the system looked like of sacrificing animals. There's a lot of gaps here, but I think we can see some basic hues for respect. That is respecting authority, respecting giving offerings, and respecting the overall pursuit of consecration to the Lord. So think of respect with regard to authority. We've already seen it in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, because you're supposed to honor thy father and mother. Authority is not reviling your parents or reviling a ruler set aside by God or reviling God himself or cursing with language those set in authority over you. You may disagree, and if you're being called to sin, you should disobey but you're not to revile. Reviling is an attitude of anarchy. Reviling is a dishonoring of authority. And God says that's of no value to you. Do not curse those in authority. Why would you want a ruler of yours to be the worst they could possibly be? Curses flow downward just like blessings do. Pray for those in authority and inform consciences by living and by teaching God's word in community. This is good. Reviling is not. And also, don't delay in making offerings, this text tells us. Respect God by worshiping God, God's way. In Mosaic terms, this was harvest tithing and circumcising sons and giving your best to the Lord, not the leftovers. Delay tends to lead to defraying from God our best. Just give off the top, it says. The corollary in the New Testament is to bring a sum of money in keeping with your income to corporate worship on Sunday, to support the work of God and His mission, even as you worship God. The temptation to be selfish, to disrespect God in this way, has always been there. Look at Cain and Abel for an example. War against sin. Sin is bad. God is good. And pursue consecration. Or holiness would be the word that we often use to describe this set-apartness that is a theme throughout the Bible for God's people. As we've said, your life is to be described and understood as Christ's. 
You're wrapped up in Christ. You're blessedly in Christ. This is your hope. That your faith in Christ is evidence that you are in Christ. And so you will resurrect from the dead after you die, the same as Christ resurrected from the, de- from, from, the de- from the grave after his death. So you will rise too. That's the hope in Christ. That's the way it's described in the likes of 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places. So you're to pursue this consecration or more readily pursue holiness. That's a pursuit for us because God is holy. 1 Peter makes that new covenant corollary clear when he says, You shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy, picking up on words from the writings of Moses. He is making me what I ought to be, we used to sing a little tune, and I should be willing participant in His good work in me, His good work working good within me. That's a sort of a death in us to sin and a life in Christ, and we are to embrace it. So whatever principles that we may derive for civil government or even church government from Jewish case law, one function of the law is very clear, and we see it based on how Galatians interprets the law, or at least I should say the application of the law in the life of the believer. The law is designed to instruct you on how different you are from God, on how good God is compared to you. The law prepares you for the gospel. We see this precept in Galatians 3. Let's just very simply look at Galatians 3, 24 and 25 and 26. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Why? in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through what? Faith. And that sign then that we put on is described at the end of Galatians as baptism, whether male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. And you are all Christ's in Christ, heirs according to the promise you're considered Abraham's offspring. We see this illustrated in the story of Zacchaeus. Do children remember Zacchaeus was a wee little man? A wee little man was he? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. Do you remember this this song? Some of you will know this. This law did its good preparatory work on Zacchaeus. By implication, Zacchaeus clearly knew Exodus 22. He knew that a thief was to repay four sheep for every sheep taken. Zacchaeus' joyful exclamation of restoring it fourfold was an admission of his sin. The law had been a guardian to Zacchaeus. Teaching Scripture had prepared him to look for the Messiah who would keep the law fully and who would give him the confidence in eternal things that he might lose his rank in first century Rome and his goods in favor of righteous repentance. Zacchaeus had no earthly reason monetarily to declare himself a thief, honor the fourfold restoration described in Exodus 22, and even take care on the poor. But Zacchaeus gave half of his goods to the poor rather than money lending. God's goodness overflowed through a born-again Zacchaeus, it seems, through caring for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. Here's Zacchaeus' story afresh in Luke 19, and especially pay attention to how it Ends. Verses 2 to 10. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not 
because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And the application here is not, go give the other half. You're missing the point. The application here is he had understood the law. He tried to apply the law. And he understood something of who Jesus was. And listen to how this ends. Jesus said to that wee little man, Zacchaeus, and he says to you children, and he says to all of you, regardless of age, today salvation came to that house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Despite all that he'd done, despite all of his sins, he was a son of Abraham. And verse 10, not verse 11, but verse 10 is very operative. It says something about the Son of Man. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Isn't that true? That's what Jesus did. The wee little rich man, Zacchaeus, didn't only pursue justice, but he had come to understand himself as a thief, as a lawbreaker, as a man under judgment. He climbed up in that tree high to see Jesus, but he winds up tumbling down very low to discover the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You must know that you're lost in order to be found. You must know that you're blind spiritually in order to see. We must come to the Lord in humility. Zacchaeus, low of stature, got low to the ground, I imagine, and figured out who the Lord was. Because the Mosaic Law had done good work in Zacchaeus. It had tilled the soil to describe God's goodness and God's glory. What we can say, then, is that God is good, but we do not mean to imply that we are good. What we mean to imply when we say God is good is that God is about the business of making His people good. That's His promise to His people. He saves us right where we are for the purpose of consecrating us and making us more like Him, of bringing His goodness to bear in our community. This is how and why we covenant together as a church to live out God's goodness among us. The law is meant to convict us of our sin. That's why we read the Bible cover to cover for examples and encouragements and understandings of God's manner and His character, to make much of God. This gospel saves us, but it must be received. God promises to make his people good one day. God's goodness will become visible through us, however imperfectly and slowly, through the church community. As we grow in responsibility, individually, restraint, not acting impulsively, as we grow in respect for authority, particularly God, as our desires become molded and fashioned after His. His will is more known to us through the pages of Scripture and prayer all the days of our life. Excesses will be less. Freedom will be more. And we will finally, when we meet the Lord, not just be able not to sin, but we won't be able to sin anymore. And that's what will make heaven, heaven, aside from the biggest thing, which is God is there. Friends, I wonder if you need to receive this gospel today. Whatever good you see in God's people is because of the goodness of God himself. It's not us. We're instructed in 1 Timothy 4, 
1 Peter rather 4.17 to actually do self-judgment. That judgment begins in the house of God so that you as unbelievers might come to believe by means of our witness and of the teaching of the Word. We're sorry for where we've wronged you. We're sorry for where we have witnessed wrongly about God's goodness in the giving of His law. And we're sorry for where we've been bad, where we've misrepresented God. But believe you me, anything good that attracts you toward God because of His people is a boast in Christ. It's not a boast in us. We were lost and now we're found. We're blind and now we see. And you can be too. And so we plead with you today to put your faith in Christ. He's the fulfillment of every promise of Scripture. He is good. Christ not only lived the good life that you couldn't live, but he also died the bad death that you should have died so that you wouldn't have to face the second death. Is it ever summed up more perfectly than in Romans 3, 23 and 24? When the book says, For all have sinned, without distinction, every single person has sinned and thus falls short of God's eternal and good glory and are justified by His grace as a gift. If we're to be made right for our wrongs, if we're to overcome the burden of sin, we have to accept grace as a free gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a tremendous gift this Christmas, friends. Receive it. The greater gift you'll receive this Christmas is not under the tree. It's this gift of grace. Would you be free from your burden of sin? The old song says there's power in the blood, power in the blood. But sin must first be a burden for the power in the blood to be relevant to your life. So, as a sinner, come to Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Love Jesus. And spend forever with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we take a few moments now to consider your goodness in our lives.